please stand as you are able for the reading of God's word. The text for this morning comes from John chapter 15, verses 9 through 17. Uh, The text will be on the screen as I read. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Now remain in my love. If you keep my commands, you will remain in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commands and remain in his love. I've told you this so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be complete. My command is this, love each other as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, to lay down one's life for one's friends. You are my friends if you do what I command. I no longer call you servants because a servant does not know his master's business. Instead, I have called you friends for everything that I learned from my father, I have made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you so that you might go and bear fruit, fruit that will last, so that whatever you ask in my Father's name, I will give you. This is my command, love each other. This is God's word. Please be seated. We're starting a brand new sermon series today called Christian Practices. We're gonna spend six weeks in this sermon series. One week, which is today, we'll set up the whole sermon series, and then we're going to spend uh, one week looking at each one of these uh, practices. Uh, If you've never seen these before, heard of these before, well, you'll get to know a lot about them uh, in the coming weeks. Uh, There's a sign right out front, by the way, that you pass every time that you come into the sanctuary uh, through that entrance area that we call the narthex. And there's a sign that has these five practices and what they are listed there. So it's a very important part of our church. Uh, So if you've been here for a while, you've probably heard of these practices before. But also I know that, especially since 2020, there's a lot of new folks here. uh, And this might be the first time you've ever heard us really expand on this in any type of detail. So I'm very excited for this sermon series. And one of the reasons I picked this sermon series for me, it's something that's very familiar, but something that I too need to be refreshed on quite regularly. But the other reason why is that it helps me uh, prepare a little bit for the next sermon series that I already teased you about. And yes, indeed, we are going to tackle the book of Revelation next. We had enough feedback. I, a couple of you are excited. Uh, but but uh, we had enough feedback through some of the, the discussion forums and that sort of thing uh, when I asked what New Testament book of the Bible should we do next, and that's what you chose. Again, if you're new, we typically pick books of the Bible that we often preach through, Old Testament and New Testament. So we just did the book of Haggai, now we're doing a New Testament book, and that's what the, cons- not the consensus was. There was actually, when I... Uh, announced that I was even thinking about it, there was a strong minority of folks here that were saying, absolutely not, don't do that. Uh, I don't know if you're thinking, like, I'm going to ruin the church because of how difficult of a book that is, Uh, and maybe that will happen. Maybe it's only God's grace uh, that will hold us together. Who knows? Uh, So (laughs) basically, the compromise that I'm striking between the two groups here is... uh, Revelation is 22 chapters long. It's, it's a fairly long book, uh, really thick with a bunch of things, and we're going to go through it in 18 weeks. Uh, so we're going to go through the book of Revelation at a pretty steady clip, a little bit more than one chapter a week. And for me, I think the, the reason that might be helpful is that it gives you a, a bigger picture of what the book is all about, because there's a lot of imagery, there's a lot of things that can, can, you can really get stuck and, and kind of lose the forest through the trees, as it were, 
Uh, and I think going through it at a quicker speed might give you a bigger view of maybe some of the themes and the theology and the relevance of what that book is all about, both for the original readers and for a congregation like us here and now. So that's the goal. Be praying, praying for me, of course, as well. It's, it's, a, it's kind of an intimidating book. I mean, I have, I have like my, my understanding of it, so I'm not, I'm not like, oh, I wonder what this is all about. Uh, I remember even taking a, a class on Revelation back in seminary. Uh, and my uh, advisor at the time was a, a guy who wrote, um, you know, a several thousand page commentary on the book of Revelation. I, t I took his class on it. Uh, so I have familiarity with it. But if you know anything about this book, there's opinions about it. Uh, and there's, there's opinions of, that folks would say there's opinions, and then there's the correct view that you yourself would say that you have. And so that's kind of the tricky thing. It's a bit of a landmine to navigate, but I think it's going to be a huge blessing to tackle that. But for now, we're looking at the five Christian practices that um, we emphasize here as a local church. Uh, before we get into this first sermon, let's pray. Lord, it is such a joy to have a gathering of your sons and daughters in this place. People from all walks of life and different experiences and different joys and pains that they bring into this place. And Lord, your word meets them where they're at. Uh, you value them. You love them. You've extended grace to them. You invite them into your love. And I pray for those here that they would hear your word, that they would be encouraged by it, challenged by it, called to uh, the transformational way uh, of Christ, uh, and that in the, that path they would find their joy. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, as many of you know, it's that time of year that people make New Year's resolutions, and maybe it's the year that you made one. Maybe, if you're like me, you kind of just skip it uh, and, and not think about it too much. But if you do ever make resolutions, uh, annual resolutions, this is the time of year to do it. Uh, and why not? It's a fresh start. Everybody loves a fresh start. It's a new year. 2022 is done. 2023 is here. So why not try to do something new? Some of the most common resolutions that, that people make this time of year include uh, areas or resolutions having to do with health. So resolutions about exercise or eating healthier or stop smoking, those types of things. Another common area would be finances, uh, saving more money or sticking to a budget. Uh, another really common one this time of year is when people do a little audit on their social media use and say, I want to spend less time on that and more time on resting or reading books or hanging out with friends and family. And then this got me thinking, how many people keep with their resolutions? And th if these are the common ones. How many people stick with the plan? And according to one source that I read, 9% of people will keep resolutions for the full year. And that's not even they, they, that they keep it perfectly. Of course, they, they fail and they don't regularly do what they committed to, but they, they recover and they get back to it. So only 9% will keep resolutions for the full year. 23% of the people that make resolutions at New Year's will quit by the end of the first week, and 43% quit by February. So, uh, so a lot of people drop really, really quickly when it comes to making resolutions. And it, it speaks to this reality that it's, it's hard to stick with a new commitment. It's hard to make a new habit in your life. We often lose motivation or the, uh, the busyness of life kind of sweeps us away again and we start to fall back into our old routines. Making a new routine, a new habit, that is difficult work, but going back into old routines 
routines and old habits is very, very easy. I think another reason that we often uh, fail to keep resolutions that we uh, make is that we sometimes set really difficult goals, really difficult expectations. Just think about how much easier it would be to follow through with your resolution if you pick something that's a little bit more low-hanging fruit. Like, let's say that you commit this year not to run in a marathon, but eating more tacos, right? Like, if that was your resolution, you probably could make it. It would probably be a more manageable uh, commitment that you make this year. But often when we pick resolutions too, it's just this really, really almost unattainable goal that you've you know, never have quite done this in your life, uh, but now you're gonna start this year. And these are some of the reasons why I think we don't stay with our resolutions. But I think this time of year also reminds us why resolutions are an important part of life. Because we know that habits and practices are part of life, and that we know that some of them are good for us, and others are not, and there are other practices or habits that we wish we could add to our life that are not present there right now. And we know that these regular, ordinary things that make up our life, our day, our weeks, our months, our year, has an impact on us, that it's forming us, that it's shaping us to be somebody into the future. Uh, it's where maybe a phrase, you are what you eat, comes from. It's, it's that daily, regular, ordinary consumption that has an impact on you. And it's not just food that has that impact, but relationships have that impact on you, uh, your, your work does, your study, all these types of habits have an impact and it's forming you to be the person that you are going to be in the future. And so that means that your daily, weekly, annual habits are very, very important. So I figure this is a very great time of year to introduce and, uh, to us again the idea of our Christian practices that shape our local church. And you see them again, like every Sunday, you walk past them. And, and we, we use this language of practices, or you could say habits, Christian habits, instead of values, because it speaks to a more ancient way of looking at Christian formation that's been around for thousands of years. Uh, and so those, uh, so you've probably been in maybe a religious context or church communities where they have values. For us, they're practices, because we believe that these practices shape us to be followers of Jesus Christ. Uh, so today's sermon will introduce the, the series in general. Uh, I'll do a quick introduction towards the end of each one of those practices, uh, the five practices of the Trinity. But let me uh, set up this sermon uh, and set up the series by this sermon by asking three questions. The first one is this. What is your salvation for? I like this question because it gets at a common experience that I see with Christians. We know that one of the most central calls of the Christian faith is to believe in the gospel of Jesus Christ, that is, the message, the good news about his death and resurrection, and confess that Jesus is Lord, and that when you do that, you are saved from your sins and you're united with Christ, where you get him and also invited into the new heavens, new earth forever and ever and ever. That's, that's a pretty central point of the Christian faith that you're likely here because you've heard that over and over and over again. This is how you get saved. This is how you become a Christian. But sometimes it feels like when you get that down so well, now you are a Christian and you're like, so now what? I'm saved, but what's the next step? Sometimes I think the Christian life can feel like you have 
clear directions to a destination, but once you've arrived there, you're a little bit lost about what happens next. What do I do here? How do I get around? How do I navigate this new place? One of the most helpful ways to maybe answer the question, what is your salvation for, is to first answer the question, what is a disciple? Right? Because the Christian life is a call in to be a disciple of Jesus. So if we are able to answer the question, what is a disciple, we can get a little bit closer to the answer for the question, what is your salvation for? The most basic meaning of disciple is someone who is a follower, an adherent, a student, an apprentice of somebody. So to be a disciple of Jesus means that you're an apprentice of Jesus. That's what it means in its most basic sense. But this basic meaning has, has a lot of depth to it, and it, ha- and it includes at least three different things. The first step, for example, to becoming a disciple, as we know, is be, uh, becoming a disciple by responding to the call of Jesus. When you read the Gospels, Jesus always initiates a call with his disciples. You, you think about the beginning of the Gospels, and Jesus is going to these new people that are not following him, say, and they're like right in the middle of work, right in the middle of a job, and they say, put down your nets, they're fishermen, and start to follow me, and they respond. They put down their nets, and they literally get up, and they follow Jesus. Or if you think about the reading today, that, that we choose Jesus because he first chose us, is the language there, that, that Christ initiates this relationship. It's his call, his grace, his love that is there and present before we even love him, before we even start to follow him. He initiates the call, and then we hear that call and respond to it. Jesus says to all people, come follow me. Meaning, even if you're here this morning and you don't identify with the Christian faith, that's still the call. And he's still making that call through his church. He is saying to you right now, come follow me. Even you, regardless of where you're at or what you've done, you are invited to respond to the call of Jesus too. So when you become a disciple, you respond to that call of faith. You believe Jesus is who he says he is. He is the Christ, the Son of God, who is fully man and fully divine, who conquered sin and death and will come again to judge the living and the dead. So you say, yes, that's who you are, and then you change the direction of your life uh, where at once you didn't respond to this call, now you do, and you are committed to Jesus regardless of what the cost is. So that's the first step of discipleship, responding to the call of Jesus Christ. The second one is, to go back to that meaning, a disciple means a follower of Jesus, that you learn his teaching, you practice his way so that you become more like him. And I'll unpack this quite a bit in the sermon. But a third and final uh, way to really understand what it means to be a disciple is that being an apprentice of Jesus also means committing to his mission. The most clear uh, commission in the scriptures comes from Matthew 28, where Jesus says, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. So we too are called to go to others to give them this gospel call, call them to follow Jesus, baptizing them, and then teaching them to love God and love others as Jesus commands. So what is your salvation for? 
Well, your salvation is for following Jesus, to become more like him and to join him in his purposes to renew your neighborhood and the world. That's what your salvation is for. You are saved to remain in Christ, to follow him and to join him as he enfolds his purposes in the world. So this uh, leads to the next question of the sermon. How do you grow in that as a Christian? So even if you buy into that, sometimes that feels so distant, unattainable. So if, you, if you're sold onto that vision, this is what it means to be a disciple of Jesus. This is why I'm saved. This is the purpose for which God has called me to. So how do you grow in your commitment and devotion to that cause? John 15, 9 says, says it this way. As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Now remain in my love. Right before this teaching in verse 9 and verses 1 through 8, Jesus lays out this imagery, this illustration of the Christian life. And he says that he, the Christ, is the vine. We, his followers, his disciples, are the branches. And God is the gardener. And he says healthy branches bear fruit. Uh, which they can't do unless they are connected to the vine. It's impossible to bear fruit unless you're connected to the vine, which is Christ. And we grow in our capacity to bear fruit, to have a healthy Christian life as God prunes us like a gardener. So to remain in the love of Christ looks like that, to be connected to a vine like a branch. And to remain in Christ's love means to be drawn into the love of God so that the love of, between God the Son and God the Father is the paradigm for what it means for Christ to love us as his disciples. So when Jesus says, remain in my love, or as some translations say, abide in my love, it means make your home with Jesus. That's how you grow in the Christian faith. Remain in Jesus. Make your home in Jesus. Stay. Dwell. Don't leave. Don't move around. Stay and remain in that love. That's how you grow as a Christian. Which raises the question, well, how do I remain in Christ's love? What does that look like? Jesus continues to teach us. Verses 10 through 12. If you keep my commands, you will remain in my love. Just as I have kept my Father's commands and remain in his love. I have told you this so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be complete. My command is this, love each other as I have loved you. So how do you remain in the love of Christ? How do you make your home in Christ's love? Jesus teaches by keeping the commands of Christ. And what is his command? He says, love each other as I have loved you. Another take on the greatest commands of love God and love neighbor. Love each other as Christ has loved you you. See here, love is more about obedience than it is about knowledge and experience. And that when you talk about remaining in Christ's love and how to do that is through obedience, that kind of sounds stuffy at first glance. It's just like, really? That's the answer? Obedience? Following the commands of Christ? That's that, that doesn't sound very loving. That doesn't sound very exciting. And that's why I think verse 11 exists. He says, I have told you this so that your joy, so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be complete. Obedience might be bringing up images of the Christian life as boring or dull, but Jesus says here that obedience to him and remaining in his love completes you, and not only completes you, completes your joy. 
It's what you're made for. It's how you come alive as you're invited into this love and you practice the ways of Jesus, the, the, the commands that he's calling you to, and that increases joy, not dullness. It gives you everlasting joy. It, 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 every joy that you experience here on earth is in an incomplete joy that finds its completion in Jesus Christ. One of the ways that a church father put it is, quote, the glory of God is a human being being fully alive. Or I would say, to use imagery from this scripture, the love of Christ is a human being fully alive. You want to become fully alive and enjoy everything that life has to offer? The thing that you should have FOMO about, a fear of missing out, is not remaining in the love of Christ through practicing the ways of Jesus. Because if you don't practice the ways of Jesus and remain in his love, then life will not be full of joy and meaning and purpose. So that's what is at stake here. But it's an unexpected answer. It's usually not the one that you're going to think about. Like if, if your spiritual life right now is characterized as being stuffy and distant from God and fruitless, the, the answer that you might be thinking of, of how do I overcome this, is usually not obedience. It's usually not practicing the ways of Jesus. There's probably a couple other things that might come to your mind first. One of them being, maybe if I just learn more or think more, or go deeper intellectually with the faith, then that's going to uh, help me uh, grow in, in, in remaining in Christ's love. And there's something to that. There's, I, obviously, I'm a person that, that, like many of you, have went and got some degrees and spent some tuition dollars on some of those things. And so knowledge is something that's important to the Christian faith, but it's not ultimate, especially when it comes to this. Let me give you an illustration of how knowledge has its limits, for example, right? Uh, let's say that you're really into vehicles or you're really into cars. I'm not a car guy. Some other people are. I, I just like, I remember I meet, sometimes meet car guys and they're like trying to get me really excited about it. I'm just like, that's great, whatever. I ride an e-bike, uh, right? I'm not a car guy, okay? But some people are, right? But imagine being a car guy and you know a lot about, or, or a car gal, and, be, and knowing a lot about vehicles, being antique cars and trucks and whatever, you know all about them, right? But you never drive it. Do you fully experience the joy of that knowledge if all you do is read about it but actually never take it out for a spin? That's a little bit of what Jesus is getting at. One of the ways that you, 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 you experience more and more the joy of following Christ is by actually practicing the ways of Jesus. Not just knowing about the ways of Christ, but actually doing them and practicing them. Or maybe if your spiritual life, again, is dry, distant from God, another response that you might have is maybe not to know more, but to feel more. I need an experience. I need some big experience just to light up my spirituality, like a conference, an awakening. I need to be slain by the Spirit, something like that, that just like, I need that experience, and that's what's going to uh, complete my joy and help me to remain in the love of Christ. This reminds me of an illustration from uh, author uh, Tish Harrison Warren. She wrote a book called Liturgy of the Ordinary about these things. And she says that most of what forms you as a Christian isn't the big experiences, but it's the ordinary, boring things of the Christian life. 
And she goes on to say that often we treat the Christian life and this kind of chasing after the high of experience like, like it's kind of like the equivalent of foodie culture. And, and many of you, and I'm included, are interested in the new restaurants in town and that experience, chasing that experience, right, of finding that new restaurant that has the cutting-edge chef that's just doing things that haven't been done before. And so that's what you're chasing. It's not just the boring meals at home. You want to go out, go to a restaurant, and experience something amazing, right? You want to go to one of those new restaurants with, with the Thomas Edison lights and the reclaimed wood, and you sit down and you order the chicken, and then they bring you out, like, the chicken's name and birth certificate, and you get to have a conversation if the chicken was treated well before it landed on your plate. Like, it's that whole thing, and you want all of it, right? And that's 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 a high that you're always chasing. You're chasing the experience of foodie culture. And sometimes Christians treat their spiritual formation like that. They need that equivalent to grow in the faith. When in reality, growing in the faith looks more like daily meals of meat and potatoes and leftovers. And that's actually what's sustaining and nurturing you more than the big-time experiences that that uh, open your eyes to things. That's the reality. If you want to remain in Christ's love, practice the ways of Jesus. Don't chase experiences, don't just chase more knowledge, but actually the ordinary, regular callings of Jesus in everyday life is the thing that shapes you and makes you, uh, makes your joyful. James K.A. Smith wrote a book that draws a lot from the great saint, St. Augustine, where he says that you are what you love, taking kind of that phrase, you are what you eat, but connecting it to spiritual things. You are what you love, and if you love Christ, you're formed by him in his ways, so you are what you love, and what you love is both revealed in and shaped by your everyday, boring, ordinary life. That's what's shaping you. You want to know what you love? Look at what you spend time doing. That reveals your love, and then also those regular daily habits are forming you to be the person that you are. And we are called to be a people that love God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love our neighbors as ourselves, that we love others as Christ has loved us, so that we can remain in his love and our joy can be complete. And therefore, our practices then ought to reflect what our love is, and so that the practices also shape that love in our everyday life. So what are some of these Christian practices? To go to that question, what are some of these Christian practices? What do they, what do they look like? And this is where I want to unpack the five Christian practices that we're going to look, like, look at over the next five weeks. And maybe the preface before I get to the first one is, is this is an illustration I've used before, but it's a good reminder to me, that's why I keep coming back to it, uh, about where these practices come from, right? Chris Rock, he's a, a comedian, and he has this bit about uh, not bragging about the things that you're supposed to be doing, right? And he has a d bunch of different ways of illustrating it, and one of the ways, a couple of the examples that I, I take from his little bit on this is like, uh, just like imagine a parent or a student like bragging about what they're supposed to be doing. It's ridiculous, right? If you're a parent and you're like, I'm a good parent, I love my kids, I discipline them, like, I'm a good parent. And Chris Rock essentially says, well, yeah, that's what you're supposed to be. That's minimum requirement, being a good parent. That's the calling of being a parent is love and discipline of children. Or if you're a student 
and you're really boastful, like, I'm a good student, I study, and I try to get good grades. Well, congratulations on beating, meeting the bare requirements of what a student is. Like, you don't boast about what you're supposed to be doing in a certain vocation or calling. It just is. And I think about these five practices that our church has committed ourselves to as that. We aren't boasting about, like, these are our Christian practices. And they're so extraordinary that nobody in the, the, the history of the church up until this point has practiced these things quite like we have. One of the things you'll see as I unpack these five practices, these five ways of Jesus that we, we do these things to remain in his love, is how obvious they are, how ordinary they are. So let me, let me um, unpack these very quickly, these five practices that are not cutting edge. They're old and universal, practiced by Christians throughout time and across the globe. The first one being worship. And worship means that we glorify God and enjoy him in every area of life. Worship. And that's not only this is what we're doing right now, but it's your, your, your daily life. And it's how you can take every part of your life to be an act of worship. So the practice of worship. The second practice. The practice of Christian witness. We proclaim the gospel through our words and through our actions. Number three is fellowship. We practice fellowship as a church. We foster a countercultural community as a family of believers. Number four is service. Service. We pursue justice and mercy both locally and globally through service. And number five is stewardship. We seek the common good through our vocations. Those are the practices that we're going to look at over the next five weeks. And one of the things that I want you to do is to get very practical with each one of these um, practices, to, to commit to what Christians have said throughout history. They say it's a rule of life. I don't know if you've heard this phrase before, but a rule of life is, is like a resolution, but better and more gospel-centered. A rule of life is a specific and practical commitment to a practice in order to remain in the love of Christ. It's an old practice, an old phrase that's been used throughout church history. It was first connected with the early monastic movement in the fourth century, and, in, and many of the Protestant reformers also incorporated this idea of a rule of life into their routines and lives as well. So this is what I'm going to have you do as we go through each one of these practices. Each week, we're going to come to this gathering, and we're going to learn uh, about a practice at the Sunday gathering. That's the first thing. That's what you're doing right now. Next week, we're going to learn about worship. Then from there, I want you to commit to a rule, to get specific. So if you learn about worship, that you get a practical rule of life that you write down and commit to, that you're going to say, I'm going to try this. I'm going to start practicing worship through this rule, that's a very specific way that I'm going to do that. And then the third step, of course, is that you practice it. You do the rule that you committed, you committed to. You fail at it. You succeed at it. You, you just go through that process of any time that you're trying to create a new habit where, where you're just trying to work it into your life. And you, you, your expectation shouldn't be that it's perfect. You're going to experience the full failure and su success of committing to a new rule and the fourth and final thing we're going to do is discuss it with others. And for those of you that are part of community groups, I encourage community groups uh, in our guide. We'll be unpacking these in a little bit more detail. If you're not part of a community group, this is still a great thing that you can get, get together with friends or your household and talk about what you're learning, what you're committing to, what you're trying to practice, 
and, and debrief it with people in your life so that maybe they have tips for you uh, and, and they can also share maybe what their rules are and how they are trying to practice the ways of Jesus. When you are starting to write these rules of life um, throughout the next several weeks, one of the things I want to remind you of is to, to go back kind of in that introduction and not to make a rule that's unattainable, that you're just setting yourself up for frustration. It reminds me of 1 Thessalonians 4, 9 through 12. This is what Paul writes. He says, Now about your love for one another, we do not need to write to you, for you yourselves have been taught by God to love each other, using some of that language that we just learned about in John 15. And in fact, you do love of all of God's family throughout Macedonia. Yet, we urge you, brothers and sisters, to do more and more. And what does that look like? To make it your ambition to lead a quiet life. Mind your own business, work with your hands just as we told you, so that your daily life may win the respect of outsiders and so that you will not be dependent on anybody. And I just love how he goes from this application of love one another, this is, and you're doing this, so do you want to keep growing in this? And, and you're kind of maybe expecting like this radical like, like calling that he's about to give him, but he just says, live a quiet life. Work with your hands, do things diligently. It was just, he goes from like this amazing call to love each other as Christ loves us, and then the outworking of that is to do so in an ordinary, quiet life. So one of the things I encourage you to do as we move ahead in this series, as you're creating these rules of life, is maybe not create a rule of life where you're just like, I'm going to read the whole Bible in a day. Just like one day, Numbers, Leviticus, I'm going to kill it. You know, I'm just going to go, go for it. Like, no, you're going to get frustrated. Maybe a verse a week is where you need to start. And that's fine. Start somewhere. If you, if you don't have a habit currently of reading Scripture regularly, maybe when we get to that habit of worship, that's where you start. Just a verse once a week. Just start somewhere. Or maybe you're thinking like, like man, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, to, my rule is I'm going to lead my entire block to Jesus Christ. They're going to get baptized at Trinity, right? As cool as that would be, probably not going to do it, right? It's probably not going to happen. But maybe the rule that you commit to when we talk about the practice of Christian witness is that you have a really close friend that you've shared everything with in life. Your failures, your successes, your political opinions, and this is somebody that you've done life with, and this person's not a Christian, and, and you have yet to share your faith. Maybe start there with that friend before you start winning the entire block to revival, right? One of the, a really good book, a resource on how practical this can look is a book by an author named Justin Early. He wrote a book called The Common Rule, and even some of the examples he gives are just insanely practical for rules of life. Some stuff like reading scripture before scrolling on the phone in the morning is like a practice that he encourages. Sharing meals once a week with others. And, and it's, he's speaking into like, sometimes it's hard to have fellowship because you can't even sit down for a meal. So just do one meal where you have fellowship maybe with your family or with a neighbor or having a weekly one-hour conversation with a loved one uh, that you typically don't touch base with. These are the types of rules that I'm encouraging you to think about. Think ordinary, practical, attainable rules that you are going to flush out each practice with one of these rules of life. Um, let me conclude with going back to John 15 uh, to keep our focus on what this is all about. Why are we doing this? John 15, 13 through 17, this is how that passage ends. Greater love has no one than this, 
to lay down one's life for one's friends. You are my friends if you do what I command. I no longer call you servants because a servant does not know his master's business. Instead, I have called you friends for everything that I've learned from my father I have made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you so that you might go and bear fruit, fruit that will last, and so that whatever you ask in my name, the Father will give you. This is my command, love each other. Jesus teaches us that he calls us friends and brings us to, into relationship with him as a friend. And I'm going to stand, step back. He uses this, this imagery of friend and servant and switch the image of servant to something maybe a little bit more familiar to you as a colleague in a place of work, uh, which maybe depending on your job, you feel like a servant, I don't know. But like, just think about like just the distinction between friend and colleague, right? Sometimes when we think about things that are associated with work, especially an unhealthy work relationship or environment, that's uh, all about information. It's about tasks and productivity and the bottom line. And so if you think about Jesus as your boss, your colleague, and this calling to practice his ways, that's what it can feel like if you have this more legalistic image of what it means to be a follower of Jesus. But here Jesus reminds us that we are his friends. And the best working relationships indeed are friends, but being a friend means that you're brought into a person's plans. You understand the person's motives. You understand the grand purposes of what, what drives that purpose, that person in their life. And with Christ, we understand the purpose that he calls us to, to join in the renewal of all things. We're not just told by Jesus to obey, but Christ shows us how it connects with the largest purpose of purposes of God, to love God and to love others. So how do you view Christ and this calling to practice his way of love? Is he your boss or is he your friend? And Jesus reminds us here that he is our friend as well as our Lord, and he's calling you to remain in his love, not to become friends, notice this, but because you already are friends. You don't practice the ways of Jesus to get him to be your friend. He's already called you to be his friend, to be his followers. He's already committed to you. He's all in. He's asking you now to increase your joy by remaining in his love. And he shows and displays his friendship to us by laying down his life on the cross for our sins, by initiating that calling to be his friends. And that's why we are committing to his ways and his practices because he already is our friend. He already is our savior. And we right now want to love him, to remain in his love, and to increase our joy by practicing the Christian life.